Hello, church. Thank you for listening to the Gallery Church Podcast. We're in a series based upon the book of Colossians. We are attempting to study this letter to this gathering of people so that we can learn from them and increase in our faith, hope, and love in our city at this time. We hope this is a blessing to you. And if we can help you in any way, please feel free to reach out and let's get back to the podcast. Um, My name is Mark Salvaggio, and I've got our New Testament reading for today. In um, Colossians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14, pardon. Uh, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Mark. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. And good morning, Mom. Uh, She's one of the faithful watchers on Sundays, so um, if I want good Christmas presents, I need to greet her now. Oh, we'll edit that last part out, but... um, A couple of things that I need to catch us up on really quick. Uh, We've had several weeks of an introductory teaching, and so if you haven't heard the last couple of Sundays, there might be a few things that I reference, but you might not understand in full. So I do want to encourage you, if you want to be on the journey of faith with us this year, um, if you could catch up by going back to our YouTube channel, um, you can find that in our app. Um, if you need help with that, we can also encourage, figure out ways of helping you get there. We're working on some final steps of getting it all transitioned over to podcasting. But we're in a series through the book of Colossians called Subverting. And we're wanting to know what does it look like for us to say yes and no to authority? We can't just blindly go with the flow. When is the right time to stand up and say no? And when is the right time to embrace a yes and say, we need to do this together? We've used the illustration of how the roots of a tree grow underneath the soil in order to um, root the tree firmly in the ground. But also we've been looking at the redwood illustration of how this massive tree has a shallow root system, but the trees interlock their roots to support one another as a beautiful picture of what we should be. We're not a room full of individuals. We're a oneness group. There should be some level of understanding 
that I am not going to get through this unless I have you, and you're not going to get through it unless you have me, and there's a shared understanding. And so, so much of the New Testament is rooted in the understanding that there is just oneness amongst us and not us all trying to find our own isolation. So um, Paul wrote this letter that we're in, Colossians. And if you've been around, you're like, how many more weeks are we going to read Colossians chapter 1, 3 through 14? And let me just tell you, none. Like this was it. So if you haven't memorized it over the last three Sundays, I want to encourage you to keep um, striving for that. But we're going to start moving forward now through the letter to Colossae next week. But we needed to lay a foundation because there's so much historical information we need to understand, but we don't need, just need to understand the history of it. We also need to have some sort of pastoral guidance. It's like, so what did this mean for them? And then what does that then mean for us? And so how do we lean into the Holy Spirit so that we're not just gaining in, oh, okay, this is who it was written to and the time period it was written in and the, the people and the, the things they were facing. And this isn't just Old Testament references. Like there has to be some moment where we're just like, okay, Lord, what is, does this mean? How does this impact the decisions that I'm making? And so the last couple of weeks, we've been making a case for the fact that Paul wrote this letter, which he only could do two things for the church in Colossae. He was in prison, so the only two things that he ever did for these people was write them letters and pray for them. Like, but yet, God used it powerfully to grow a healthy church in that region and, and continue to allow him to encourage other leaders that were using the gifts that God had given them, but he was only able to write to them and pray for them. But his desire was is that they would reach full Christian maturity. And the problem is, is when we hear that, we hear the word Christian, and we associate that with so many of the perversions of Christianity in our generation. And so some of us are struggling with, do we even like the term Christian? Do I want to be known as a Christian? A lot of you will feel comfortable telling people, I believe in Jesus, but you have a hard time saying Christian. And what we're trying to say through this series is, is that the first people that looked like Jesus were called Christian. Because the meaning of it was basically, look at all these little Christians walking around, people following Jesus. They look like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They act like Jesus. So why can't we be accused of looking and acting like Jesus? And so we've got to figure out ways of how do we, in our areas of influence, recapture the Christian maturity that Paul's talking about here. And Paul, as we get into chapters 2, 3, and 4, we're going to find that he wanted them to have amazing Christian instincts. Like, if stimulus comes at them, they immediately respond like Jesus. Not where they'd have to say, this, like, the pressure came, now let me go look in the Bible, how should I respond? He wants it to be immediate, so when the, 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 the news, the bad news that comes their way, somebody's been crucified in their fellowship, like that was happening in that first century, what do we, how do we now respond? We don't need to go away and pray for three or four days to know how to respond. They, he wanted them to develop this instantaneous faith that no matter how they were tested, no matter how the storms of life came at them, there was immediate response. So last week, we took a huge journey through the Old Testament. 
All right, I don't know how many of you actually went back and looked up the references, but they're in the app for you to go back and look at all the ways that God was asking Israel to be a different kind of nation that was against the flow of all the other temptations of nations that were seeking power and how they were to care for the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, and how they were to be a generous people and how they had rhythms for even the love for the land that they were farming where they could work it for six years, but then they couldn't work it. They only could eat from the land on the seventh year, whatever it produced. And so there were so many things that we thought that Moses came down from the mountain with just 10 commandments when actually over those 40 days, God was giving Moses instruction for how to lead a whole new nation of people that had one God through a special group of people that he had elected to set a display in front of the rest of the nations about what it looked like to be a nation that followed after God. And so we talked a lot about that last week. And so when you begin to look at Jeremiah, the prophet, saying to them in exile, even though you're in an oppressive land, the subversive way to have an impact on your captors is to live a generous life, multiply, marry, build houses, work the fields, Love your captors. Like he goes through in, in, through this passionate description to them saying, even though you are in a place of hardship, I don't want you to think that God's expectations of you have changed. So whether you're in a great moment or you're in a bad moment, the expectations of God on our life is that we love. And so we see in the Gospels that, we've, that Jesus simplified these commandments that we refer to. Have any of you ever heard a pastor say, God took 700 commandments out of the Old Testament and simplified them into two? Some of you are like, well, Ellis, you've said that. Well, I'm glad you've heard that. <laughs> um, but there's over 700 commands in the Old Testament, the things they were supposed to follow. And then we come to what was referred to as the greatest commandment, which was what? To love the Lord your God with all your... And then to love your neighbor as yourself. So we find that in our Christianity, we hold on to loving God and loving others. And we think Jesus simplified that. But if you look at John's gospel, he actually takes it a step farther and simplifies it into one sentence to his followers. And he just says to his disciples, love each other as I've loved you. So if two is too complicated, Jesus is like, let me make it even simpler to say, I want you to love as I've loved. Can you do that? That's what he's saying to his disciples. But I want you to see, and I'm going to make a case for this today, that none of the things we talked about last week are now thrown away because Jesus simplified the commandments. Because if I love you the way that Jesus loved me, then there's not going to be any type of oppression in that, is there? There's not going to be any lack of generosity in there. There's not going to be any moments of us feeling like somebody else has won a victory over somebody else. And so today, we're, we will focus on Luke's version of the gospel because it is likely the story that would have been the one known by the Colossians church. And why do I say that? Do any of you guys remember the first week of introduction? Because in chapter 4 of the letter to the Colossians Paul says something very powerful when he says, the good Dr. Luke greets you. 
So he says to them, the good Dr. Luke, obviously they knew who the good doctor was. And so if this particular church was familiar with any of the four gospels, it was very likely that they were familiar with Luke's gospel. And if they were familiar with Luke's gospel, then what would they have thought of? What, how would they have processed the story of Jesus? In hearing and just reading Luke's gospel, now I'm not saying they didn't have access to Matthew's gospel. I'm not saying they didn't have access to Mark's gospel. But I'm just saying the Bible wasn't put together yet the way you and I have it. And they would not have been able to look at the 66 books of the Bible as easily as we do. They would not have been able to pick and choose the gospel reading for that day. They would have only had the letters that would have arrived. And it's very likely that they would have had some kind of relationship with Luke. And how would Luke have been talking to them about their story of Jesus Christ? So last week, we looked at how Paul told the story through the nation of Israel. Today, we're going to look at how Luke was going to tell the story of their salvation through Jesus Christ. And then what does that then mean for them as we go through this letter? Because if we go back to the words that Mark read for us, he was saying to us in chapter 1, verse 6, it is bearing fruit everywhere by the changing of lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So in saying that, they've obviously heard something that they understood and it changed their way of living so much so that the people around them were noticing they were living differently, if I could put it in the proximity of, or in the direction of this teaching, they were becoming a subversive group of people in their culture. They weren't living Pax Romana anymore. They were living Jesus Christ's way. They were finding a way to focus on Jesus. And by looking at Luke's way of telling the story of Jesus, I think we're going to gain a lot better understanding of what this letter would have meant to them so that you and I could figure out then what can it then mean for us. So let's look at Luke's gospel for a minute. So if you have a paper Bible and you want to flip or you have your digital Bible and you want to be in Luke 1, we're going to hop through several chapters. Some of the verses will be on the screen for you. Um, but I want you guys to see this. So if Luke was the one telling them the story of Jesus, Luke goes through great pains to situate Jesus firmly in the empire of his day. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. Three times at the beginning of the gospel, we're told very precisely who the rulers were over Israel. Luke 1 verse 5, when Herod was king of Judah, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, at that time, the Roman emperor was Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout all the Roman Empire. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman Empire, and Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod Antipas was the ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was the ruler over two other little cities that are hard to pronounce. And then then there was another gentleman that had a really hard name, and he was ruler over another city that's really hard to pronounce. And then Ananias and Sapphira were the high priest at the time. Or, excuse me, Ananias and Caiaphas were the high priest at the time. So Luke is going through great pains in telling the gospel narrative by naming the leaders that were in power at the time of the birth of Jesus. And I think that's really important. And I think it would have been really important to this church in Colossae because this is the way they're hearing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is born into a world of violence, 
a world that was all-encompassing under this imperial control where Emperor Augustus was making everybody underneath of their authority to register for what? Taxes. So where were Mary and Joseph heading on the night Jesus was born? To register for taxes. And so they were on their way there so that they could put their name down, talk about what they owned, so that the Roman authorities could decide what their taxes were going to be due. And what was that tax for? What was that tax going to cover? Those taxes were going to fund the building programs that were going to put roads in place so that they could easily carry commercial goods from one place to another. Those taxes were in place so that Roman could have a military ready to respond in all of their regions to suppress anybody that was stepping outside that was going to mess up the Roman version of peace. Those taxes were going to be there so that they could control the religious leaders and the empowered Jewish leaders. Now remember, Rome's strategy wasn't just to put a Roman in charge. Their strategy was to put the, uh, a leader from the ethnic group that they had overtaken in charge to control them so it was like they could say, look, we're supporting your people by you leading yourselves. But by the way, if you don't lead the way we want you to, we'll, we'll kill you. Um, so if you want to live at peace, do it our way, but we're going to do it through you. Like, they had all of this happening, and they paid for it through all the ways that they were taxing people. And it is very likely, if you go back and you do some historical studies, that the taxation rate, depending on where you were and how in favor you were with Rome, was somewhere between 35 and 60%. All right, just let that rest on you just for a minute as we are heading towards all kinds of crazy prices here. Like this, this is the setting that the Messiah is born and an alternative peace is announced. Luke is making a strong case in these first three chapters of saying, let me tell you when the Messiah came, what the circumstances were like around him so that you can then begin to see more clearly that Jesus was announcing another form of peace. Didn't even change the word took the word that Rome was using and said, you know what, I'm going to take that word and I'm going to tell you what it means to God. And that's why I don't want to give up on the word Christian. The word Christian should be redeemed for God's purposes and not for the ways that it has become in our society. So Luke doesn't situate his story so clearly, I believe, in this imperial power context in Rome because he's just being a good historian. We have several writers in the room, several of you that I really wish I had your skill set. And, and in order to be a good storyteller, there's got to be all different types of influences. And Luke is a fantastic storyteller, but he's not just being an historian here. There's a purpose to the foundation that he's laying. And so let me make a case for some more of that. So there's three things that I'm going to show you as we go through Luke's gospel. The first one is Luke tells us about the rulers and the empire because he's concerned with the setting of the context of power. Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. You can write that down and read it later. But consider the song of Mary. We're not even at Christmas yet. Hold on, Advent's coming, believe it or not. We're just a few calendar turns away from us with decorations and Christmas and all that. But in Mary's song, she audaciously 
powerfully, clearly, combatively proclaims a God who throws down the rich and powerful and raises up the poor and lowly. Have you ever taken time at Christmas to sit in Mary's song as she's anticipating the birth of Jesus? And see the language in which Mary is talking about the ways that people are being taken advantage of in the world in her generation that her eyes are seeing and how what's coming from her being birthed, Emmanuel, God with us is going to change all of those paradigms. Luke is being highly strategic here. Luke makes sure that we understand John the Baptist's teaching style was Isaiah. He takes a great length in describing it in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then if you compare that to Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, you can begin to see that John the Baptist, in the context of Emperor Tiberius and when Pontius Pilate was the governor, you can see the, the, the similar flow of what he was saying. So in Luke 3, 1 through 6, it says, It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, and Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, and Herod Antipas. We read that part. Let me jump down to verse four, or excuse me, verse three. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, which the Jordan River divided Jews from, okay, that's all I'm going to say. John went back to place to place, both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented from their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And this is what he says about Isaiah. This is Luke inserting Isaiah here, talking about John the Baptist. He was the voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord is coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled. The mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened out and the rough places made, made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Now, if you don't... I, Jesus wasn't coming to change the topography of the Middle East, okay? That is metaphor. That is language that was speaking in a subvertive, but yet poetic, powerful way that if you were a first century person underneath the control of Rome, you would have picked up on all of the overtones that John the Baptist was proclaiming by talking, and Luke was writing about Isaiah, talking about all the things Jesus was going to do, all of the mountains and valleys and, and, and the ways in which oppressive people, specifically Rome, was putting all this stuff in front of you, Jesus was going to make the path straight. He was going to make it easier for us. So the second thing, Luke continues the story um, not just at the beginning, rooting it in empire. He comes into what is referred to as the Nazareth Manifesto. Any of you ever heard that before? All right, you're like, wow, okay, this is a Nazareth Manifesto. There's a, it, it's, a, it's a theological description of basically Luke chapter 4. We don't have time to read all of Luke chapter 4, so I'm going to put that on you for this week. But I want to highlight a couple of things. Because in the manifesto, he pulls again from Isaiah, announcing good news to the poor, freedom for the yeah, prisoners and captives, those enslaved, in the, and giving sight to the blind. Okay, so in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. This is Jesus speaking. That the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free. 
and that the time of the Lord's favor has come, period. Wait a minute. That's not right. Because if you go back to what Lana read to us just a few moments ago, the place where Luke puts a period in Isaiah is a comma. Wait a minute. What's Jesus doing? Have you ever thought about that? Listen to what Jesus edited. He edits out, oops, sorry, one more slide. Verse 19 of uh, Luke, what he takes out is, and with the day of God's anger against their enemies. So it goes that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. But Luke has Jesus stopping at and the time of the Lord's favor has come, period. Do you want to know if we had time to continue in Luke chapter 4, verses 21 through 30, that when Jesus started to speak, everybody was like, he's amazing. But when he edited Isaiah, guess what they wanted to do? No, they went to push him off a cliff. So go back and read Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 21, and you'll find that the crowd got angry at him because what did it mean that God wasn't going to take vengeance against their enemies on their behalf? And they've been in captivity for so long, they can't even remember what it was like to be a free people. And they're like, wait a minute, you say you're representing our God and our God is not going to enact a revenge against our enemies? then you can't be from our God, so we're going to dispose of you. And so they literally tried to push him out of the city, and it just says that Jesus made his way through the crowd and walked away. So did he like go like Invisible Man? Did he like just like phase through people like Vision would have done it? Or, you know, like, I don't know how he got through, but somehow Jesus gets out of that situation because the crowd went from praising him to being angry that he wasn't going to enact judgment against their enemies. And if we follow Jesus's words through Luke's gospel, what did Jesus tell them to do for their enemies? Pray for them, turn the other cheek, carry their bags. And they're like, can you now see why so many of them were conspiring to put him on a cross? Because they wanted the freedom to hate. They wanted to be able to take revenge against the people that were oppressing them. And they were like, wait a minute, we love everything that you're saying that lines up with the Old Testament laws that were given to our people, but you're now changing it because Jesus was saying that the motivation behind all the laws that you were given was love. You have now taken love out of all the laws that you were given, and now you're using them for purposes that weren't originally ordained for my elect people. And so you can continue to see Jesus in Luke's gospel teaching on this good news and a new kingdom that was going to include the poor and Gentiles. And so how did he display that? Jesus had incredible banquets. You begin to see the way that Luke, between Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 20, Jesus starts having banquets with all kinds of people. And all kinds of people are welcome at his table. And all kinds of people started criticizing Jesus for the people he was eating with. Like, you can't be who you say you are if you're with those unclean people. But Jesus was showing what loving God and loving others or loving them as he loved them or 700 laws of the Old Testament acted out of how to care for poor widows and how to care for nature and all these things. He's like, let me show you what it looks like and the choices that I'm making. 
He ate with people. He actually fed people that were peasants following after him, but just taking a few fish and bread and just multiplied food for people that were struggling to eat. He even goes on in Luke's gospel, the way Luke is telling Jesus' story, rooted in empire and all these leaders that were very important in the first three chapters. Somehow Jesus came out of all of that and then begins to act towards the fellow Jews and, and trying to help them to see that he's the Messiah. He has a lot of words to the rich and he's welcoming them in. But the one thing he says to them is, sell everything you have. And they're like, uh, some of them did. Several of them walked away like, I've done the loving God, loving others thing, but you want me to give up everything to follow after you? And he compares the rich in his gospel, which I hope I'm inspiring you to read all of Luke's gospel this week. It should take you 18 minutes if you read like me. He uses these three major metaphors. The rich are like lilies of the field. The rich are like little children. And the rich worship God rather than mammon. That's what he wants for them. And so he's using those as a way of talking about what it looks like for Jesus to be the Messiah in the world. So Luke continues in his gospel, the third point, with what is a new social order in Jesus' kingdom. And the way he proves that is in Luke chapter 22, 24 through 27, where he's like, those that follow Jesus don't give everything up so that they can then be in power He's like, you give everything up because the greatest in my kingdom are those who serve. He's changing the paradigm of leadership so much so that even two of the disciples, mama steps up and says, hey, when you, take your, when you enter your kingdom fully, would you put one of my sons on the right and the other son on your left? And this mom had no idea that Jesus was going to be enthroned on a cross. That mom would have never said, hey, my, when you're hanging up there, would you hang my son? And, well, maybe one of them, you know, right? Like, but they would have never, she would have never, they totally didn't understand. Jesus was turning power upside down and saying that the, the greatest is going to be the, the servant of all. And there's a powerful story in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 38, that this kingdom in which the master comes home from a banquet in order to serve his slaves. I mean, that does not sound like the culture of our day, does it not? Could you imagine? You go to work all day, and then you come home to serve the people that are waiting on you? I have a serious issue with men that think that, oh, I work, and then I come home, and then I just sit. I also have a serious issue for women that do the same thing. I think there's a way that we should serve one another. And Jesus is changing the paradigm of how you and I view the going out and the coming back and then what, how do I give honor and how do I receive honor? He's like, wait a minute, you think the only way that you can be honored is somebody takes off your shoes and washes your feet? Let me tell you about the best seat of honor. You take off somebody's shoes, you get down on your knee and you wash their feet. Then you're honored. We're like, whoa, I don't have a, I don't have a framework for that. That's just not the way that we think in this world. And so when we find that Luke is most likely the gospel writer that was inspiring this church to learn about Jesus, 
This is a kingdom where the ruler is enthroned on a cross and on this cross wins the freedom and the life of his people. And the early church would have heard from Luke, oh, and by the way, he wants you to go do the same. So it wasn't just okay in Luke's gospel for Jesus to be put on a cross. Luke continues as he ends his gospel letter by saying Jesus then turned to his disciples that were like, I want you to go and make other disciples. And by the way, you're going to give yourself up for them just like I gave myself up for you. And that would have been the message that this church in Colossae would have received. So let me bring Paul's telling of Israel and Luke's telling together so I can end this. But these themes were central for the stories of the first century Christians. Just want, I need us to understand that this is what they would have been hearing and how they were living under the oppressive power of Rome. And they were hearing about Jesus's life through somebody like Luke. And they were understanding the, the story of Israel and all it had been through and what we refer to as the Old Testament. We have focused largely today on Luke, but you can do the same thing in Matthew's gospel. Now, let me just tell you, Matthew's gospel is audience was, was Jewish people. Luke is going to read a little bit different because Luke's audience was Theophilus, who most likely was a non-Jewish. He was a Gentile convert. But Matthew was specifically writing to Jewish people, and yet he spoke to them in the context of their understanding about power. And Mark, obviously, is arguable, the first gospel written, and a lot of the gospels follow the timeline based upon Mark, but that's just another historical thing. I don't know if that really means anything or not. But this proclamation that Jesus had a kingdom he wanted us to live in, not just a heaven to escape to, but a kingdom that they were to live in is why so many of the people in Colossae were having a powerful testimony because they were hearing what Jesus said and they were actually doing it. And there was a renown happening all around that region because, wait a minute, there are a whole bunch of people living counter-cultural to Pax Romana. They were actually functioning under grace and peace that was pronounced in Jesus Christ. And it is this Jesus that this early community would have followed. And ladies, I want to encourage you, Nymphas mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 because she was an example of a woman who was most likely wealthy and gave up everything to follow Jesus. So if you believe that this is a male-dominated book, I just want to challenge that. This is a, a God that sees us, Period. It doesn't matter what skin tone we are. It doesn't matter what gender we are. God sees us, and he wants us to participate in his kingdom. So let's work backwards from that. His kingdom is loving each other the way he loved us. If that's too simple for you, then you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then you love your neighbors as yourself. If you need more information, that means I do nothing to oppress, uh, oppress anybody, the poor, the, those that lack homes, those that um, are angry, those that are oppressive, those that are, are taking things from other people. Like, if I'm going to love God and love neighbors, I don't get to pick and choose which neighbor to love. I don't get to pick and choose loving as Jesus loved. I've got to go back. And so everything we talked about, even caring for God's good earth that he's done, is still a commission for love as I've loved. And the early church was figuring all that out and was following after him. And so let me, let me bring it back to Luke 6, verse 43 through 45. 
in verse 6, 43 through 45, comes back to the fruitful language that's mentioned. He's, Paul is complimenting them because they were being fruitful. Why the fruitful metaphor? Well, Jesus says in verse 43 of Luke 6, a good tree can, cannot produce what? Bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from brambled bushes. But a good blackberry does have a thorny bush. But um, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. So if we look at Paul writing to the church in Colossae out of a hole in the ground through prayer, and he's talking to them in fruitful language, could it not be because he knew that they had heard a story of fruit from Luke talking about if you're rooted in Jesus Christ, this is the type of life you're going to produce? And by the way, I hear you're doing it. No slavery in the Colossae church. The rich and the poor have what they need. No needs amongst them. They were treating, they weren't faking the weights on the scales when they were selling their wheat. They weren't overcharging for the dye, for the clothing that Nympha most likely had a dye business that produced the fine dyes and clothing to give the rich and the poor their distinguishing garments and the dyes for the Roman army. Like It's very likely she was making money off the very thing that people were wearing to identify, oh, I'm better than you. She was the original founder of Nike, right? So, um, I'm just kidding. Uh, from what I understand, their clothes are discounted right now. Um, so, Ninfa and many were embracing the fact that what Jesus said he meant. Is that a revelation? I mean, we have a framework for talking about what Jesus said, but do we have the practice of doing what Jesus said? And so, as we go through the rest of this church in Colossae, we're going to see how Paul is reminding them to love their enemies, to do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you, pray for those that abuse you. This strange advice is coming to a group of people that were being oppressed. Can I just stop and just say, can we let ourselves fully grasp the fact that Rome had no problem putting you on a cross if they viewed you as a threat or rebellious in any way because they wanted to squelch rebellion with violence. And the early church was hearing a message of Jesus saying, you need to love the one that is putting your loved ones on a cross. Do we even have the mental bandwidth to, to deal with that emotionally, let alone intellectually? And this was what they were hearing. And so when you go to Luke 6 and verse 38, let me, let me let you hear this hope through grace when we do this. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Now, I, I, I wish I had a visual for this because have you ever had like... Like for me, it's gummy bears, and, and, and when I want something, I like my Sour Patch Kids, which is basically a gummy bear with sour in it, right? Um, when I have a container, I don't like the air pockets. It's wasted space, right? So whether I'm sneaking, 
whether I'm keeping some in hidden places in the home, um, which my wife will tell you, she's found two of my hiding spots. Um, I, I'm, I'm confessing. Like, we actually, all right, so never mind. That's a whole other story. It's marriage counseling once a week is helping me with this. But when I have my container, right, I'm shaking it because I want to make sure that every possible Sour Patch kid can fit in whatever contraption I'm trying to hide, save them in, right, for a better day. Can I just tell you God is looking at our lives and trying to see how much of his goodness he can shake in there? It really is the truth about who God is. But our world is trying to get us to think that he's not that good, that he doesn't want to love us that well. And he is up against the free will he's given us for some of us to say, I choose to be powerful, and the only way for me to be powerful is to oppress you. And so you have to then deal with God and me and try to figure out how is he shaking Sour Patch Kids into my life. And, you, and, we're, and we struggle with that sometimes because when people around us are oppressing us, it, we, our cry is God, like, help me. And he's like, I'm trying to get in there and shake in every bit of goodness I can. I just need you to keep enduring. Be long-suffering, be patient. And I promise you, that it's going to be running over and poured into your lap. And the moment you give, that it will determine how much you're being given back. And I just want us to hear this as a church. As we go through the letter of Colossae, starting now, what, in verse 15 next week, and we look at this powerful poem that's added, we're going to find that this church believed that God was looking for ways in the midst of the oppressive life they were living to shove goodness into them as best he possibly could, because he knew it was going to be a testimony that he's a good God, and he's the only God in a culture that has many gods. And he's going to prove that he's the one God by how well you and I listen to his words, understand them, and obey them. We have a responsibility. It's not all of his responsibility. He's asked the church to be his elect people in the world, to be a display of who he is, and the way we do that best is to love other people the way that he loved us, which is grace and peace. That's how he met us, and that's how he wants us to live. Some of you today, this might be the first time that you've really heard a message about Jesus, and I just want to be very clear on this. He loves you deeply, more than you could ever imagine. And if you are, are just sensing today that, look, I want to be loved that way, I've heard that that love is possible. The way that the people in Colossae learned to embrace him was just to say, none of that is working, but Jesus is Lord, and I'm just going to confess that he's Lord. I receive it. I take it. That's as simple as it is. That's the simplest prayer you probably could pray is, man, Jesus, you're Lord, and I just want to receive your love. And I would pray that today, if some of you are in that situation, that you would just say that out loud, Jesus, your Lord, and I receive you. And let us start to walk together in a community obedient to Christ together. All we need, you don't have to close your eyes. I mean, you can kneel, you can raise your hands, but it's the power of words. Say what we mean and mean what we say. Jesus, your Lord. And for those of us that have said that, how are we doing? Is he still Lord? 
is he Lord of us or is he just the one that's going to get us to heaven? Do we really listen to him? Do we really have the opportunity in our life to say, today I'm going to obey you, Lord? Jesus, how would you do my job? I'm an engineer. How do I do a job as an engineer like Jesus would do it? God, I'm a nurse. How do I do my job as if you were walking in my Crocs today, right? It's like, how do we give God the space in us to say, inhabit me, I am your vessel. What would Jesus do with my life? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. Father, it's been quite the introduction as we've been getting ready for the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul wrote. But Father, my prayer is that for myself, as well as for the people that this really roots us in the grace that you've shown us and the peace that you've promised. And if we develop a grace and peace lifestyle, Father, I can't imagine how many Sour Patch Kids you could shake into our life. Your goodness can fit into all the places that the enemy's trying to suffocate us. That the decisions of the people around us, there are people that have a, 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 embrace power and have embraced evil and they are wanting to do harm but lord you can give us victory through our prayers for them through our love for them and father help us not to give in to revenge father we want to love the way christ loved and father for those that prayed you are lord for the first time father i pray that they are just overwhelmed with your spirit they sense your spirit. They feel your spirit filling them, giving them understanding to things that they can't even begin to fathom. But Lord, they are just like, wow, how do I understand this? It's because the spirit is with us. So Lord, I thank you for that today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gallery Church podcast. I want you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your mind and heart. Let Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, do the deep work that only he can do. I want to say thank you to everyone who gives to the church. Your gifts make this podcast and ministry possible here in Baltimore and other parts of the world. You can be a part of our work by going to gallerychurchbaltimore.com give or by downloading the church app from the app store. You can also subscribe and share these podcasts with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening or watching and may God's grace and peace be with you.